There shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasons refreshing sent from the Savior above. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops around us are falling, but for the showers we plead. There shall be showers of blessing, precious reviving again over the hills and the valleys sound of abundance of rain showers of blessing showers of blessing we need mercy drops around us are falling but for the There shall be showers of blessing, send them upon us, O Lord. Grant to us now a refreshing, come and now honor thy word. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops around us. But for the showers we flee, there shall be showers of blessing. Oh, that today they might fall. Now as to God we're confessing, now as on Jesus we call. Showers of blessing, showers of blessing. Surely, mercy drops round us are falling today. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 16. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perished, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of joy. 
receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and the ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be you holy, for I am holy. Amen. All right. Return with me to the book of First Peter, if you will. Jean has read down through verse 16 for us. So this morning we're going to be looking at the glory and the greatness of salvation. What is it to be saved? What does it mean? So as we look at the first chapter of the book of First Peter, of course, we want to see who wrote this. All right, Peter wrote it, and he wrote it from Babylon. Who did he write it to? Well, he wrote it to those strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So those are two of the three things that we want to see in any Bible study, right? Who wrote it? Who'd they write it to? And what were they writing about? So what was he writing about? We see, and let's turn over to chapter 5 of this same book of 1 Peter, and we'll see in his closing, verse 10, so... 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thou Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. What was Peter writing about? All through this book, he was writing about the true grace of God wherein these people and us, being the elect according to the full knowledge of God, stand in. We stand today in the knowledge and the belief of the true grace of God. Why was he writing to them? Because they were suffering. They were suffering. They were being affected by false teachers who were turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. So he is writing to them to help them through this time in their life that they're going through and to help them through this opposition and the changing of the truth of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to realize this morning that we too are going through such a time. 
we are living through a time when the understanding of fallen man has the audacity and the level of pride to change God's Word to make him feel better about himself. So Peter is writing to them for this reason and because of this uh, condition situation that their life is in. Now Peter loved the word salvation and he used it many times in this letter even. The greatness and glory of your salvation. When you're saved, what does it do to your heart? What does it do to your mind? What does it do to your emotions? Well, for one, it's salvation and deliverance from the consequences of sin. We find ourselves in a condition fallen from birth. We're not necessarily sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. We were born that way. We've been studying the book of Genesis, the fall of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, and we realize that uh, this was inherited, this fallen nature, this separation that they experienced. God called it death. It was a separation from Him. We were born into it. So the description of salvation, deliverance from the consequences of sin, yes, by grace by grace so what does the thought of the glory and greatness of salvation do to you does it thrill your heart to realize that you are not going into eternal death but that you are going into eternal life because of what Jesus Christ did for you based on His love for you. God created Adam in His own image, in His own likeness. We talked about that recently, how Adam lost a lot of that. He lost access to the true knowledge of God. He lost access to the tree of knowledge that grew in the midst of the garden. He lost that connection So does it fill your heart with joy to know that you're His child? That He saved you by quickening your heart? It does, doesn't it? All the prophets in the past wondered about this salvation. Verses 8 and 9 says, and it's talking about them, whom having not seen you love, I'm sorry, and whom, talking about the Lord here, Though now you see Him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The glory of the Lord. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation, here we are, verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. They spent their lives searching out the Word of God. They prophesied, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. They prophesied that Jesus Christ was coming and that He would be God Himself. Now again, God created Adam in His own image, in His own likeness. What did Jesus Christ do? 
We've heard explained already this morning how Jesus is God. He is one in the Godhead of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He came to this earth and took on what? The likeness of sinful man. Just the opposite of how Adam was created. Adam was created in the likeness of God. Jesus Christ was born as a human in the likeness of sinful flesh. Yet, praise God, without sin. In salvation, it is all of grace. It is all of unmerited favor. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. That word begotten is anageneo. <laughs> and you know that's probably not right. But it's a Greek word and it means to be born, to be made alive, where life replaces death or emptiness or non-existence. Which according to His abundant mercy He hath begotten us again. That takes us quickly to the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, doesn't it? You must be born again. You must be born of the water and of the Spirit. He hath begotten us unto a lively hope. And that word, the Greek word there, and I'll do better on it maybe, is zeo. And it means living or to live. So He has begotten us or given us life unto a living hope. You see, we were dead spiritually before He quickened us. And that word means to make alive, doesn't it? Has begotten us again unto a living hope, a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The account of Cain and Abel, and we're going to be studying that before long, we see that they they both had access to... Uh, the east side, I guess, of the garden. You remember, uh, there were there was a cherubim with flaming sword there to protect access to the tree of life. Well, they were able to come there and to bring sacrifices to God. Where did they learn to do that? Well, they learned it from their father, didn't they? They learned it from Adam, of course. And we see two different approaches to pleasing God. Two different approaches to pleasing God. Cain was a husbandman, a farmer, a gardener who killed in the earth. And I'm sure that he grew some beautiful plants, some beautiful vegetables, beautiful fruits, probably as beautiful as have ever been grown. Because we've noticed the curse on the earth, it gets worse and worse as time goes, doesn't it? And the ground is more depleted of the original 
sources of life, if you will, minerals and all that. But we see that he brought this to God as a sacrifice to represent uh, the gift of his life. What did his sacrifice point to? It pointed to two things. His ability to farm, his ability to till the ground, his ability to grow vegetables or whatever it was that he brought and presented as his sacrifice to God, and then the ability of the earth to produce such life, vegetables, whatever it was. Well, there's a couple things wrong with that. Number one, Cain was born after Adam's fall. Cain was a sinful creature. His ability had no ability to reach God. Because of Adam's sin, the earth was cursed, wasn't it? So now we've got the cursed ground and a product of it attempting to make connection with or please God. It can't do it, can it? No, because there's a great guff fixed there between holiness and sinfulness. Between blessed and cursed. Though the Lord didn't accept his sacrifice. Now Cain's actions after the Lord didn't accept his sacrifice, uh, the Lord actually told him how to do better, but he didn't, did he? No, he slew his brother out of jealousy and anger. Okay, what about Abel's sacrifice? We'll say it was a lamb. We don't know that. But it was an animal, an innocent animal, that he slew and shed the blood of. Well, that animal was raised on the ground, right? That's fireworks. That animal was raised on the ground, ate from the cursed earth. Abel, to some degree, showed his ability to raise the animal. So what's the difference? Abel was the sinner. He was born after Adam. He inherited the sinful nature. So why was his sacrifice accepted and why did it please God? Here's the difference. Cain's sacrifice pointed to a cursed earth which has no ability. There's no ability on earth for life or to save a soul. There's not a person ever been except for the Son of God that had the ability to live a perfect life and give it up or sacrifice it for others. Only him. Abel's sacrifice pointed back to God's remedy for Adam and Eve's disconnection from Adam and Eve's disobedience and sin against him. How so? God's remedy was to show Adam and Eve that the works of their hands, which were sewn together fig leaves to cover their nakedness, that they had just realized they had because they had disobeyed God and they had partaken of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. 
all right? And God took an innocent creature and killed it and shed its blood and took the skins from that animal. Again, I tend to call it a sheep. We don't know that, but... uh, He took that animal and he made, God made, coats of skins and covered their nakedness with the coats of skins. And it rightly showed God's remedy and reconnection of man to God. It showed God's plan of sending Jesus Christ to this earth to become a person in the likeness of sinful man, yet without sin. It showed God's purpose of sacrificing His only Son for sinners. And Abel displayed that when he made the sacrifice to God. Now in the Old Testament, uh, God would send down fire and burn up the sacrifice on the altar. Uh, I figure that's what happened here, but however God showed His displeasure, we know with Cain, however He showed His pleasure with Abel, everybody knew that God was pleased with the sacrificial lamb that Abel offered to God. You see, he went by God's plan, didn't he? And Cain didn't. Cain went by Cain's plan. We said just recently that rather than uh, thy will be done, talking to God, sinful man goes in the direction of my will be done. I know what's best for me. Unfortunately, that's incorrect. We don't, do we? But praise God, He's given us His Word that we might follow Him and be like Him. So what is the basis for this great salvation? It's never changed. God doesn't. God doesn't change. This sacrificial lamb, who in time, the prophets talked about it, they prophesied about Him, Jesus Christ. He is the sacrificial Lamb. He is the basis of the salvation that you have today. That trust in Jesus that you know that He died on the cross for you. That when He hung there, He had your transgressions on Him. What Christ did on the cross, before the cross, when He lived the perfect life, What he did three days later is the basis of every human being's salvation. There's not another way. You can't come up with an idea that's better than God's. People try and people do. And people follow those ideas. But the bottom line, the basis for salvation is that a perfect man lived a perfect life and involuntarily gave that life for others.
it didn't end on the cross, though the Lord proclaimed that it was finished and His work was. Oh, but three days later, there's a reason why God sent His angel to roll back that stone in the presence of the the best soldiers on earth. And I feel sure that was the case. And in their presence, He rolled back the stone showing that Jesus Christ had paid some of the price. And after that, you've got to be good? No. No, you see, He paid the entire price that God required. What a Savior. He's provided everything for us. And that everything reaches and extends into eternal life. And it's coming. Oh, when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. We will fully realize the joy that's unspeakable and full of glory of our salvation. All right, let's read some more. Verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Verse 4 first. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away and it's reserved for you in heaven. Now, I'm going to back up to what I just said. Jesus Christ, when He came out of the tomb, He had not partially paid for your salvation. If He saves you and then leaves it up to you to be good enough to qualify to enter the gates of heaven, then you're in trouble. Because though you have a new nature and you do live for Him now, it is no longer you that sin, but sin that dwelleth in your flesh. Verse 5 says, Who are kept by the power of God, not by the strength that is within us, but by the power of God. So you are saved by the power of God. You are dependent on the power of God. And you are eternally kept by the power of God. How? Through faith unto salvation. And this faith, Bible tells me that Jesus Christ is the author of it. In other words, it was given to you by Him. Again, who gets it? Who gets the glory? God does, doesn't He? In every single thing, every part of your life, God gets the glory. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation and ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, are you in heaviness through manifold temptations. Remember who he's writing to. These people have been scattered. Greeks, all of them had been scattered throughout. A lot of it was political. They had been driven out and scattered. And so he's saying, ye greatly rejoice, even though for a period of time, for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. 
Peter is speaking to us, isn't he? Because in this time that we're in, we are in heaviness because of manifold temptations. We fight it every day, don't we? We do. We fight the devil. We fight sin. We fight ourselves. But there's a reason for it, you see. I've said many times that we are in OJT, on-the-job training in this present life. Here's the reason in verse 7. That the trial of your faith, in other words, the things that you're going through in your life, and we all go through them and it's every day, that the trial of your faith being much more precious, much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, it might be found unto praise and honor and glory. When? At the appearing of Jesus Christ. What a Savior. Verse 9 says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Verse 13 says, Wherefore, or because of all this, or because of what you've just learned from my letter, because of what you have just realized, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Reminds me of the belt of truth. Tighten the belt up a little bit. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And no, this is just not talking about uh, abuse of alcohol. This world and the love of the things of this world is intoxicating, isn't it? This is one of the things that we fight every day. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace, the unmerited favor that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. We're not ignorant anymore, are we? We know now, don't we? We've been connected to that saving knowledge of God that Adam and Eve were separated from. Remember, they lost access to the tree of life. But we have been restored. We have access, and Jesus Christ purchased it for us. But as He which called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Oh, that we would gird up up the loins of our mind. Tighten the belt of truth. We need to check ourselves on a regular basis, don't we? Make sure that we haven't found a way to water down a little bit of the truth so that we feel better about something in our lives. 
Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We have been restored, I believe, to the image of God that Adam was created in. We have been recreated or reborn to a living hope. And praise God, this living hope is eternal. And it's sure if we're standing on the rock of Jesus Christ and what He did for us and His daily and even breath by breath doing for us. It is He and His power that keeps us. May God bless the reading of His Word this day.